Uh, please join me in your bulletin or uh, Bibles. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on in the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to, to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. And I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jake. Well, good morning again. If you have been with us through the fall, what we've been doing is we're asking this question, who do we want to be as a church? And we're returning to some of our kind of core values, core principles. We're returning to some of our, our overarching vision and trying to answer that question. And if you've been here through the fall, you'll know that we've, we've, there's a lot of, we've given a lot of answers to that. For example, we have said that we want to be a storied church, a grace-centered church, a fruitful church, a midtown church, a countercultural church, a missional church, a connected church, a witnessing church, and a just church. Sure, if you've been around, you remember all of those with lots of detail. All that is very clear. Um, but even for a list like that, it's still not exhaustive. I mean, that's one of the frustrating things about doing, taking seasons like this and trying to answer this question is because you can't say everything, and so, but you, got, you, know, you want to say something. And so we've done our best to try to give an overarching vision of who we are and who we want to be in, in Midtown and this season of our, our church's life. And uh, today I thought it would be appropriate as we wrap this up before we pivot into Advent next week, uh, I think it's appropriate for us to say that we also want to be a festive church. And by that I mean we want to be a church that, that does celebration well, where we celebrate 
who the Lord is. We celebrate each other. We, we enjoy the goodness and the grace and the glory of God right here in this context. And a, a community that's driven by appreciation and, dra- and, and gratitude and uh, joy and hope. Um, so to get into that, I, w- I want to look at this amazing passage from 2 Samuel 6 and really just try to think about two big ideas. I want you to see two things this morning. That the kingdom of God is a party, and I want you to see why the kingdom of God is a party. So two big ideas, that the kingdom of God's a party, and why it's a party. So first, what do I mean by that it's a party? And to, and to get into that, we're, we're kind of parachuting right into the middle of this story. So if, but if you zoom out, here's kind of what's going on. Before King David, the first king of the people of Israel was this dude named Saul. And Saul was a disaster. His whole reign as a king was just a dumpster fire. He, he, he rejected God, and so God you know, essentially rejected him and replaced him with a guy named King David. So David becomes king, and what, what he does is he makes Jerusalem his capital city. And his first order of business, now that he is king, you find in verses 1 and 2 of our passage, he takes 30,000 soldiers, 30,000 men, and they go to get the ark of God. Now, the Ark of God was this essentially a wooden box that was covered in gold, but it was where God's immediate, tangible presence dwelt. It, it represented the very presence, the very being of God in a sense. And David wanted the Ark of God in his capital city. So he goes against 30,000 people to go and get it. And uh, they go and get it. For 20 years, it was sitting in some random dude's house in some obscure village. They get this thing, and now they pivot, and they turn. And so now it's this massive parade heading back towards Jerusalem. And look at what they're doing. This is verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Now, a lyre is like a little guitar, like a little ukulele. Uh, Harps, you know what a harp is. Um, Tambourines, we have one over here, you know, a tambourine. Castanets are those little shells that you sometimes see uh, flamenco dancers using, that that, that thing. Um, Cymbals, that. So you just imagine 30,000 people. The volume, the noise of singing, shouting, smashing cymbals, 30,000 people making their way. I mean, this is like a mashup between Bonnaroo and uh, like a marching band. It's just this, this massive, hippie-looking, religious, loud, crazy music festival on wheels as they're heading into the city. And look at David. Look what he's doing in verse 16. When they eventually get to Jerusalem, it says that David is leaping and dancing before the Lord, jumping up and down, freaking out. I mean, he's just, he's become unhinged. He's just lost himself in just the joy and the excitement and the celebration and the music of this moment. But also notice in verse 16, his wife, Michael, it says that she looks through the window, she's looking through the blinds, and and she sees him dancing, leaping, doing the floss, freaking out, doing his thing. And here's what it says. It says that she sees him and she despised him in her heart. 
She's appalled with this. This is not how kings are supposed to be acting. This is totally not proper. I mean, she kind of comes across like Angela in the office, just stern and prude and authoritarian. This, this, is, this is not how this is supposed to go. But as the story goes on, David gets into the city, and it says that they offer these sacrifices, and so they, they are feasting as a, this is a citywide block party. They are feasting and celebrating and laughing, and he's blessing them. And in verse 19, it says when, he, when everybody's about to, you know, the party's about to end, everybody's about to go back home, it says that David sends everybody home with party favors. And here's what an you know, ancient Near Eastern uh, party favor looked like in verse 19. It was a, a chunk of bread, um, a hunk of meat, and a raisin cake. So that's, you know, that's a cool party favor. Just here's some bread and meat and like a, you know, like a little Debbie raisin cake. And so um, this, is, this, is, this is what this whole day has been for him. When it gets to verse 20, he comes home. And I, can't, I would imagine he can't wipe the smile off of his face. He's just deliriously happy. He smells like meat and sweat. He's just been having a, an amazing day. I picture him kind of like that one time when Buddy the Elf comes home and he says, uh, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. Just this delirious, I'm so, it's been such an amazing day. And in verse 20, it says he comes home to bless his household meaning he has the full expectation that when he gets home, the party's going to continue with my family. But waiting at the doorway is Michael, his wife, and her arms are folded. Her eyes are narrowed. She's tapping her foot. She has a look of just cold disapproval on her face. And listen to what she says. She says, how the king of Israel has honored himself today. She's just slow clapping. Awesome job. She wants him to feel the sting of shame. You, you, you call yourself a king? You've been acting like a town drunk. What is wrong with you? Well done. How you have honored yourself today. And here's his response. Verse uh, 21. He says, I was dancing before the Lord. Meaning, I, I, he's the only audience I care about. I don't care what you think what anybody else thinks. He is all I care about, and I had to celebrate. I had to celebrate. And look at what he says next, verse 22. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I mean, you hear the um, defiance in his voice? He's like, if that offended you, if that embarrassed you, th this party is just getting started. I will make myself even more contemptible than that. You just wait. Now, it's kind of the end of the story. You get to the end of the story. If you, if you were to step back and kind of analyze that whole scenario, it, it's obvious that you have a clashing of two different personalities, two different dispositions. Um, Michael is austere and she's, you know, rigid and strict and David seems to be a lot more spontaneous and playful. But there's more going on in the story. It's not, this is not just a clashing of personalities. This is a clashing of kingdoms. And let me show you what I mean by that. Every single time that Michael is mentioned in this passage, she is not described as David's wife. She is described as the daughter of Saul. Maybe you notice that. It shows up three times. Verse 16, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul. Look at verse 20. And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, 
verse 23, and Michael, the daughter of Saul. Here's the point. The author wants to make it very clear that she represents the old regime. Remember Saul, the dumpster fire, the disaster, the one who rejected God? She represents a kingdom that has rejected God and therefore was marked by the absence of God. And when you have an environment, when you have a, a reign, a, 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 just a way of being that is absent of God's presence, it show, you start to look like Michael. You start to be really concerned about image. You start to police everybody's behavior around you. And the way that you police everybody's behavior is through guilt and shame. And that's how she's, that's, she's representing the old kingdom, the old reign, the old regime. And here is David, and he comes in and he represents this new regime. And it is marked by the presence of God. I mean, the, the ark of God is right in the center of the city. And because God is with his people, it's joyful, it's spontaneous, it's celebratory, it's, it's, it's overflowing. It he doesn't care what people think. This is a theme that you see all throughout the Bible, not just in this passage, that the kingdom of God, when the real kingdom with God's presence gets brought into the world, it is marked by celebration. Another way to put it is it's, it's just a party. Let me give you an example. Matthew 22, I've included this in your bulletin. Jesus makes this pretty explicit. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He's thinking, huh, how can I describe the kingdom of heaven? You know what the kingdom is like? It's like a wedding reception that a king, a father wants to throw for his son. Now, I went to a, um, a wedding earlier this year. I officiated a wedding. I went to this reception that was like mind-blowingly next level. I don't know if you've ever been to... Um, a spot downtown called The Columns. This is where this reception was. I didn't, I've driven by it 100 times, never even saw it, didn't even know it was in there. But you go in there, and it's this massive space. It used to be like an old uh, bank vault. So it's huge. And um, uh, there, there were all these different stations with all these different food. So you go over here, and you have like the taco bar. You go over here, and you have like a mac and cheese bar. You go over here, and you've got like the... the prime rib, you know, person doing that. Uh, you had all these different cocktail stations. You had one station that was just bourbon. You had one station that was just all these signature drinks. All of all these old students from when I did campus ministry were back in town. I saw all these familiar faces. You're just hugging all these people, catching up with everybody. There was um, this massive dance floor and a, a live band. This is me being the live band. And um, we just danced and, and ate, and it was just, it was one of those nights that the, the joy was like palpable, where you just felt your heart was full, your belly was full. It was just amazing. And Jesus says, when the kingdom of God breaks into your life, it's kind of like that. When the kingdom of God breaks into the world, the best way to describe it is like a wedding reception. Just this amazing, awesome party. This is why when Jesus chooses to announce to the world that the Messiah is here, do you know what he does? Jesus' first miracle, when he wants to announce to the world the kingdom of God is here because the king is here, he doesn't cast out a demon. He doesn't raise the dead. He doesn't heal someone who's sick. You know what he does? He fixes a catering error. He's at a wedding, and they've run out of wine, and so the party is about to end early. And you think, okay, in the grand scheme of things, 
a party ending early is not that big of a deal. And yet for Jesus, it seems to be a pretty big deal. So he turns all this water into wine to keep the party going. You know why? Because the kingdom of God is a party. And when he shows up, when the kingdom shows up, it is time to celebrate. Now, here's the question. If you're somebody who's on the outside of Christianity looking in, trying to make sense of, do I believe this? What do I think about all this? Is that what you would have said? Is that how you would have described Christianity? It's, it seems like it's a feast. It seems like it's a party. If you're somebody from within Christianity, someone who personally claims to follow Jesus, is that your experience? Does it seem like it's just this overflowing, abundant feast, this wedding reception? I read a book recently called Disappearing Church. It's an amazing book. I recommend it. And they're, they're trying to understand the reason why so many people in the West are leaving the church, why numbers are just dropping, people seem to be leaving the church. And they say it's because Christianity is seen as, quote, a cultural straitjacket, restraining Western culture from freedom, pleasure, and progress. Christianity is seen like a straitjacket. It's restraining our joy. It's restraining our pleasure. It's not giving it. In fact, I have a friend who loves to kind of nerd out over theology and church history stuff, and he once sent me this picture of this old book that he found in a library. It was the 19th century printing of the Westminster Standards Directory for Worship. This was kind of an old Presbyterian formal book saying, here's how people should do church. And here's the section that he sent me a picture of. It reads like this. When the time appointed for public worship has come, let the people enter the church and take their seats in a decent, grave, and reverent manner. In time of public worship, let all the people attend with gravity and reverence, forbearing to read anything except what the minister is then reading or citing, abstaining from all whisperings, abstaining from salutations of persons present or coming in, and from gazing about, sleeping, smiling, and all other indecent behavior. Don't you dare smile. I wouldn't know anyway with the masks, but I mean, you have a picture like that. That's how church is supposed to feel. And no wonder why Billy Joel said, I would rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Is that the picture that you see in the Bible, though? Where when the kingdom comes in, it's, it's celebration. It's joyful. It's, 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 a, it's a feast. And yet, I think deep down, we do believe that if we get close to Jesus, he will take away our joy. If we follow Jesus, if we really kind of give ourselves over to believing in him and following him, it's going to strangle joy out of us. It's not going to flood us with more of it. This is why most people, I think, who attend churches, they attend church, they think about Jesus. It's like you put him put on like a coat, wear the coat for an hour, and then for the rest of the week kind of shelve it, and then Jesus has no real impact on the rest of what your week looks like. Because you and I intuitively deep down believe that real life, real joy is found apart from God, not with him. We'll kind of do the God thing, do the Jesus thing, give an hour on Sunday, whatever. But for the rest of our lives, it, 
we're going to go find joy in other places. But this passage is saying real, the real celebration, real joy, the real feast of life is found with him. This is why Michael represents someone who is not with God and she's just miserable. She's empty and just policing everybody. And David represents this fullness, this life of God with us. So who do we want to be as a church? We want to be a festive church, a church that celebrates the goodness and the glory and the grace of God, a church that throws good parties, parties that you would actually want to come to. We want to, we want to celebrate what God's doing in each other's lives. We want to enjoy the goodness and the beautiful things that, that our city offers us. We want to appreciate and, and, and delight in all these amazing things that God gives us. That's what it means to be a festive, celebratory church because we worship a God who is himself joyful, festive, and celebratory. You know, when the, when the prodigal son comes home after he's blown all of his inheritance on drugs and prostitutes and he comes home, what does the father do? Throws a party. This is the kind of God that we serve. When the kingdom of God shows up, it's a party. Now, here's the last thing. I'll be brief. Why? Why is, the king, why, is it, why is it a party? We saw that it's a party, but okay, why though? Why is it such a big deal? And here's how I want to answer this. You know, if you look through the life of David, you just read through the Bible and you just read all the things that David does, David never goes as hard in the paint with celebrating as he does in this passage. He defeats Goliath. He doesn't throw a block party. He defeats, you know, the Philistines and the Amalekites and other people that it's hard to pronounce their names. He defeats all these people. He, he doesn't form a marching band. Why is this the moment where he really goes all out and really wants to celebrate well? And here's why. Because God is with him. That's why. Because God, now they can know beyond a shadow of a doubt God is with us. Why is that such a big deal? Look at verse 21, I believe. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me. The Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, I will celebrate before the Lord. Here's how he describes God. God chose me. And here's why this is a big deal. If you go back and you read um, that story where David was actually selected, chosen to be the next king, this is in 1 Samuel 16, David has seven older brothers, and when God, through his prophet, comes to this family, there were seven people older than David, stronger than David, bigger than David, more qualified than David, and God doesn't pick any of them. He picks the baby of the family, the weak one who is like out in the field with, you know, tending to sheep. He picks the most unqualified one of the whole bunch. And here's why this is such a big deal. Because David now knows God chose me when I was a nobody. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't doing anything impressive. I wasn't doing anything awesome. There was nothing that I was doing that he looked at me and said, I want that guy because he's special. He chose me when I, there was literally nothing special about me. So there's no name, nobody, instead of obscure, random field. David knows in his heart of hearts that God wants me just for me. He knows that he was chosen purely by grace. He loves me just because he loves me, not because I'm offering anything impressive to him. 
Maybe you read the story earlier this year, Najee Harris, who's the um, big Alabama running back. He, uh, earlier this year, this April, he was attending an NFL draft party, but he was not attending the party at some bougie mansion with all of his friends. He attended this NFL draft party at a homeless shelter in California. And according to this article, the reason why was because when he was younger, him and his family and his four siblings spent some time at this homeless shelter. They experienced homelessness for a little pocket of their life. And he wanted to go and experience this big moment in his story with them. You say, okay, why? Why would he pick them when he could have had probably something a lot nicer, a lot more exciting, a lot more whatever? Here's why. Because those people in that community loved him before people knew his name. They loved him before he had trophies, before he was being drafted into the NFL. They loved him before he had any money. They just loved him for him. And he wanted to be around the people that he knew in his heart of hearts. They just love me for me. They don't want anything from me. They're not, they're not loving me because I can provide something for them. They love me just for me. And David knows in his heart of hearts that same thing. When God chose me, he knew that I, I was providing nothing for him. He loves me just for me. And when you know that you are loved like that, you want to be with that person. And when you're with that person, it's time to celebrate. Do you know that you're loved like that? Here's how you can know. Because David's great, 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 great grandson came, Jesus himself. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus said, I am the, li I'm the life. I'm life itself. I am joy incarnate. I am the life of the party, and I've shown up. So why is it? that on the cross, the Bible describes him as a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. How can joy and life itself become a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief? And here's how, here's why. It's because he's doing it for you. He is extinguishing his life so that you can be brought into it. He is giving up joy itself so that you and I, he becomes a man of sorrows so that you and I who are full of sorrows might get brought into his joy. He gets cast out of the party as a loser. He gets blackballed so that you and I could be brought in as the guest of honor. He's done all of this for you and you and I did absolutely nothing to make him want to do it. We offered him no reason that impressed him and said, oh, I think I should do this for them. We gave him no reason to love us. He loved us when we were nobodies, when we had nothing to offer him, and yet he loves us because he loves us because he loves us. That's what it means to be saved by grace. By grace. Now, I would imagine some of you might be hearing this whole sermon and you might be thinking, I'm so put off by the whole theme of this because this feels a little... I'm, I'm, I'm a little allergic to this form of Christianity, which just feels like happy, clappy, smiley Christianity where everybody pretends to be happy and pressures everybody else to be happy and nobody's in touch with reality. And you're right. You're, tr you're, you're right in the sense that um, when the kingdom of God comes, it does teach us how to lament. And we need to learn how to lament. It teaches us how to grieve. Tim Keller famously put it. He says, when salvation comes into your life, uh, it does make your heart happier, but that's not all it does. It also makes your heart more of a heart. You feel happier, but you also learn how to feel. 
you feel sadness, you feel grief, you feel loneliness, you feel all the feels. But here's the thing. Sadness has an expiration date stamped into it. One day, someday, God will wipe away all of our tears. Human history has this trajectory. The end goal of human history is a party that goes on for, for forever because of the grace of God displayed in the gospel. The gospel is good news. And so we as a church want to lean into it. Lean into what is good and right to celebrate. Yes, we need to lament. Yes, we need to ache and grieve and mourn over the things about our city and the things in our own lives that are unbearably excruciating. And yet, we also have a king that has come and is coming to kick off a cosmic, universe-wide celebration that we get to experience and get a part of, get to be a part of now. So... Who do we want to be as a church? We want to be a festive church, a church that learns how to celebrate, a church that is shot through with joy because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are this good to us. And not just good to us, but you're good to the whole world, that you would conquer death you would conquer evil, you would conquer the evil one. And in the place of death and destruction and despair, you would bring levity, you would bring joy, you would bring celebration. Father, help us to feast in light of the feast to come. Help us to taste and see more and more that you are good. We pray all this in Jesus' name.